Good morning. I am very grateful to be at a church that is generous and does think about other churches in need. It's great to be here this morning. Who knew that Christmas, in addition to being one of the most stressful times of the year, can also be one of the most dangerous times of the year? There was an article that just came out recently from Great Britain that talked about the dangers around Christmas. So here are a few of the things that the article mentioned. Almost 20% of people find the experience of hosting guests and preparing for Christmas meals and festivities completely overwhelming. A third of women feel more stressed throughout December than any other month across the year. 3% of people suffer an electric shock due to badly wired Christmas lighting, and 1 in 50 fall out of the loft trying to get the tinsel and decorations down. This was a British article, so loft being, think the attic. I'll never forget I had an attic ladder collapse one year when I was standing on it. Some 2.6 million people have fallen off a stool or ladder while hanging up the decorations. Anybody out there, have you experienced a fall? Yeah, okay. And then finally, a mammoth 700,000 people have been injured in a sale rush (laughs) while trying to snag a bargain. I'm reminded of the Cabbage Patch Kid debacle of 1980-something. Now this is fascinating to me, and I can't help but find a certain almost humorous irony to the fact that even though we are doing our very best to have a merry Christmas, to have this holly jolly season, we can't help, we can't help but to notice that we're not fully escaping the taint that occurs on it. You see, it's not just the taint that occurs on Christmas, but it's this taint that's over our world. It's this sense that there's still something not quite right with the world that we live in. And frankly, these accidents that occur around Christmas are a testimony to that. We can easily forget the problems that we have with the world, the inherent sin and darkness, All of which, and again, this is so ironic, necessitate the meaning of the holiday itself. Christmas is a unique holiday. It's one that we actually share with non-Christians. And in doing so, many markets and many department stores are fighting to keep this holiday relevant to both believers and to non-believers. Because frankly, there's a lot of money to be made. So it's necessary that the holidays are marketed to both groups of people. And with that can rise some issues. You see, there's all kinds of things because of that fact that surround Christmas that actually have very little to do with Christmas. Things that in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but they can take our mind off that which is most important. They can take our mind off the problems in the world 
which again have necessitated the need for Christmas itself. I, really, I recently came across an article by a woman named Kirsten Powers. She's actually a, a journalist with Fox News, and she wrote this article how, called How Becoming a Christian Ruined My Love of Christmas. And she talks about how whenever she was growing up as a child, she loved Christmas. She loved the presents. Her parents were divorced, and she got to go to one house and open Christmas presents at that house. And then when she was done there, she had nothing to do but look forward to going to the next house and opening Christmas presents at that house as well. And then later in life, she became a believer. And she had a very interesting take on Christmas after that. This is what she said. She said, ironically, after all of this, Christmas lost its luster for me. The rank materialism became too much to bear. And the Christmas season morphed from being a time I savored into something I tried to survive each year. Santa Claus, Christmas trees, the holiday jingle, they all felt like pagan oppression. When people complained about a war on Christmas, I often smirked and thought to myself, where do I sign up? Honestly, when a sale at Crate and Barrel gets entangled with the birth of Jesus Christ, something has gone horribly wrong. I want to be cautious um, when reading something like that to say, I will be transparent that I, I love Christmas trees. I have one in my house. I like the holiday jingles. I enjoy the sales. But what's at issue here is when these things start to become a substitute for the light that we truly need at Christmas time. That's what she's working through as well. Because in John 8, 12, Jesus is going to state, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the subject that we're going to talk about this morning we're going to seek the answer to this question in a world that is dark and is desperately trying to keep Christmas as relevant to the unbeliever as to the believer. How do we keep the light of Christ in the center of Christmas? Please stand with me as we read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. We'll be in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7 as we seek the answer to this question. <clears throat> But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. <clears throat> and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. So this morning, we're going to walk our way down through this text. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of things that need explanation. And in it, we're going to see three things. First, we'll see the source of darkness. There's a lot of talk of darkness and light in this passage. We'll see the source of darkness. We'll see the impact of the light. Then we'll see the source of the light. And then finally, we'll just talk about some practical ways to keep Christ at the center of Christmas. How to keep our focus on the light of Christ. So let's then uh, get started through this text, and I want to give some background first, and we talk about this source of spiritual darkness, this darkness that this land is feeling, this original audience of Isaiah, and we come to a people who are in great distress. The land of Israel, it's the promised land that God had given to his people. First of all, it was split in half. There's a northern kingdom of Israel. There's a southern kingdom of Judah. This was because of the sins of Solomon. Not only was it split in half, but this northern kingdom of Israel is about to be overrun by the Assyrians. The people had turned to other gods. This conquest of Assyria that's coming is going to happen two years after it was foretold in this passage by Isaiah. You see, the kingdom of Israel was turning to false gods. They had a bad king. A guy by the name of Ahaz was the king at this time. And instead of listening to what the prophet was saying, he totally turns his back on God altogether. As a matter of fact, in the temple itself, they start worshiping pagan gods. So this is the state that northern Israel is in. This is the darkness. This is where we enter our passage There's a horrible state of confusion in this northern kingdom of Israel. If we were to look back at chapter 8, we would find out that the kingdom, instead of consulting God with their problems, was consulting mediums and spiritists. They thought that they could turn to the dead to get their answers instead of turning to God to get their answers. And the prophet is aware of all this. And back in chapter 8, verse 21, Isaiah said that this is only going to lead them to anger. These people are empty, dark, cursing God, and they're becoming incredibly angry. And the text says they look to the earth to answer their problems, which is only compounding their darkness. This was the source of their darkness. In the scriptures, darkness is oftentimes equated with ignorance, but it's not just ignorance, it's also evil. It's an evil of people turning their back on God. It's an evil for which we're accountable. By the grace of God, if you're here this morning, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you won't be held accountable for that. Even though we have played a role in perpetuating this, it's treason against our king, defiance against God. It's an evil that we've inherited, and no one is innocent. This was the source of their darkness. And this is the reality of our darkness. This is our biblical condition. And when we read the newspaper, we stop to consider the condition of the world around us. 
it makes sense. Things are not right in the world. They weren't right in the time of Isaiah. They're still not right today. I was reading about all of the atrocities that went on while El Chapo was still in power down in Mexico. I don't know if you've, or probably even further in South America, about the people that were tortured and killed. And you read about these despots and these world leaders. And it doesn't take long to realize that there is something dark and wrong with the world. It's broken. There was darkness then. There's darkness now. And there's darkness that can be very, very subtle about creeping its way into you and I. John Piper speaks about this subtlety of this darkness in the life of the believer. And he says something very interesting. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. He says, it's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's the primetime dribble of tri triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. You see, there is this darkness that we're very, very susceptible to. And it stems from the good things oftentimes. Things that in and of themselves are not bad. Scriptures talk about the land and the yoke of the oxen being things that can turn us away from God. Because it can be very difficult in easy, comfortable times to not succumb to the darkness around us. Now again, God gives us good gifts to enjoy. But the danger is when these good gifts become these subtle substitutes for God himself. When we depend on the stuff, the easy way of life. Should we enjoy the gifts that God gives us? Yes, absolutely. It's just we have to be so careful not to make these substitutes put in place for the real thing. So that was the source of darkness, this defiance of God, this turning to the earth. They were susceptible to it then, we're susceptible to it again today. But fortunately, we see a light beginning to shine. And now we move into this part of the text we read in chapter 9, and we enter into verse 1 of chapter 9. And we, we see that uh, there's going to be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Thank God. Isaiah is seeing a time when this darkness is not going to last forever. There's a reference to the past in this passage as well. It says there, uh, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, what in the world, what in the world are we talking about here? So just look on this map for a moment. Um, and you see up here in the top, right around there, you see a place called Zebulun. That's actually referring to the tribe of Zebulun. And this place called Naphtali. So Isaiah is speaking to this northern part of Israel up here. This is the area that the Assyrians are going to come down and they're going to conquer. And they're going to call it their own. So we also have a reference to this, uh, this Galilee of the nations, this way of the sea. You see this whole area. After the Assyrians come down in, it's going to be inhabited primarily by Gentiles. That's this Galilee of the nations that it's talking about. 
And then it talks about this way of the sea. And I told you there's a lot of background here that's going on in this, especially this first verse. There was a road that ran right around this way. And it was called the way of the sea. And it was the road that the Assyrians were going to take into this northern part of Israel. Now the text goes on to say that God is going to make it glorious. Now the, now the prophet's already looking down the path into the future. And he's speaking about things in past tense that haven't even happened yet. But the Assyrians are going to take over this land. But ultimately it says God is going to make it glorious. You see, in that same area we were talking about, that's where Christ is going to arise and be performing much of his, his ministry. Those are where his miracles are going to happen. So we're seeing this hint of a Messiah coming already in the text. This place beyond the Jordan where the ministry of Christ is going to arise. Then we go down to verse 2. And again, we see the present-day people being described as the people who walked in great darkness, but who have now seen a great light. The next line says the same thing in different words. Those in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So the prophet is talking about this great light that's coming, that's outside of the people, external to them, removing the darkness that they're living in. Again, speaking about future events with such certainty, it's as though they've already happened. See, this is what the mediums and the spiritists were trying to do, but they could never do what the prophet of God could do. The spirits couldn't explain the things that God is now revealing through his prophet Isaiah. Now imagine this bright light coming for a moment. It, if, you're, if you've been asleep, or just imagine waking up in the morning, and somebody comes in, and they turn the light on. What happens? You start squinting. This bright light is coming in, and it's coming into the darkness so much so that your eyes can't even handle it at the moment. This is like a light that's being turned on down in a deep, dark cavern. Talking about how these people are living and how they're walking. The people in darkness have witnessed this light. And then to verse 3. Speaking of the, the impact that this light has. Uh, and again, referring in past tense, this continued work of God's revelation of himself through the Messiah. We see what this Messiah is to accomplish. And, and instead of the nation depopulating, just dwindling away, it says you've multiplied the nation. It's going to increase. You've increased its joy. It's a joy that comes like the joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a joy that's coming to the people. Uh, it's a joy they've experienced in the past. But notice, it says, you have increased its joy. Now this speaks to last week. If you are here last week, we talked about joy. And we came up with the definition of joy. It's this deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the universe. That ultimately, he is the source of joy. The joy for us now and the joy for us back at that time. This past Wednesday night, I had the privilege of speaking to a group of uh, junior high teenage, well, junior high boys. Actually, it was junior high and high school, teenage boys. And it was a tough questions night. 
I gotta tell you, I was nervous before I went to this thing. I, I had no idea what they were going to ask. But they started asking questions about the Bible. And, que- and I always like to figure out, well, what's really behind the question? And what came up? And this is so true for all of us. It's very difficult for us to see that the things that bring us joy are ultimately always rooted back in God himself. Now, I knew for that not much has changed in 35 years or so. Now, I was talking to these boys. I said, how many of you would say that your favorite thing is to play video games? Every hand went up in the air. But what I wanted to do was draw a line from the video game back to God. And this is what I said. I said, you know what? Anytime a programmer makes a video game, I mean, and, and if you've not seen a modern video, it, it's, it's amazing. They've got these orchestrations, incredible graphics, and they're, they're challenging. They're exciting to play. But you see, it's all going to be rooted back to the finite mind of a video game programmer. The finite mind that came from the infinite mind of God. You see, God made us to be creative. It's one of the most one of the most God-like properties that we have, that we can be creative. But see, we'll never be as creative as God is. Ultimately, only He's going to be able to satisfy. And I asked those young men, I said, how many of you have gotten bored with a video game and put it back on the shelf? Well, all of them had. I knew the answer to that question. None of those things can ultimately satisfy us. Only God can ultimately satisfy us. And when you think about the creative mind of God that reaches out to the galaxies and out of the cores of the universe. And then if you look at some of those videos that have been taken of the bottom of the sea, these, these fish that light up down there that we didn't even know existed, all conceived from the creative mind of God. See, only God can ultimately bring joy. In Psalm 1611, David wrote, You lead me in the path of life. I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. So this joy that we're seeking, and it was true for Isaiah's audience as much as it's true for us today, ultimately it always finds its roots in God himself. It will take a supernatural light for the people to be able to see this. For you and I to be able to see this. And then he gives them the continued reason to rejoice in verse 4. He said, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the broad of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what is this a reference to? If you recall, there's a, there's a story back in the, the book of Judges where uh, a man by the name of Gideon was to go against the people of Midian. So, God says, I'm going to win this battle for you, Gideon. I'm going to take your army of 22,000, and I'm going to pare it down to about 300. And he goes and he defeats the Midianites and Midian with this small army. God is saying, I'm going to deliver, I'm going to deliver you, Israel. I'm going to do the work. It, it wasn't by man's intervention that Midian was delivered to Gideon. It was by the intervention of God that this happened. And it's going to happen again. This yoke of this burden on the people 
being beaten by a rod from their oppressor. Now, this immediate context is to the Assyrians. I went back and read some documents this past week about what the Assyrian kings had written, men like Sennacherib and Tilgath-Pileser was one of the king's names. And they bragged and bragged about putting heavy yokes on the people. And they bragged about how they would heap up the heads of their, their enemies. All this oppression, God is saying, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to remove that yoke. I'm going to remove that rod. God is going to free his people. And it's in two ways. He's going to remove the oppression physically. He's going to bring Israel out from underneath their oppressors. And he's going to make a spiritual removal of oppression. He's going to rid the world of sin. And it's important we keep both those things in mind because, yes, when we get to the New Testament, we see Christ removing sin from the people. But he's also got his eye on the widow and the orphan. So the oppression that's being spoken of here, it's not just a spiritual oppression. It's also a physical oppression. Both things are in view. So the oppression will end, but how? And this was a time in the world where people only responded to military might. That was how you got rid of the bad guy. How was this going to oppression? How was this oppression going to end? We see it in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, what, what does all that mean? This is the kind of poetic language we're seeing here. The weapons of war are going to be destroyed. The oppression will end, but not by the means that people were accustomed to. The clothes worn during battle, soiled with blood, are going to be burned. There's not going to be any need for them. So God does not have an army in view here. He's going to conquer the enemies that are rising against his people. What? How are you going to do this? It takes an army to remove an oppressor. It takes an army to, to stop a battle. And you're going to do this? This is the impact that the light is going to have. And we're left there with that question. So there's a mystery in the mind of the reader. How are you going to destroy our enemies without an army? How are you going to end war altogether? How are you going to God in, in oppression altogether? Without an army, without a super weapon, without some despotic world leader. And then we see the answer in verse 6. Look at that first phrase. For to us, a child is born. No one saw that coming. What did this mean? For to us, a, a child is born, a son given to us. He's going to be called Mighty God. He's going to be human and divine. This was a huge puzzle. What would all this mean? He'll be this perfect king. How is this possible? God is bringing all war to end, all oppression to end. 
without using war or using oppression. This was paradoxical. It's a fantastic paradox that this would be the way in which God was going to save mankind. A way that he would demonstrate his great and unimaginable love for us. You see, God's ways are just not our ways. This is not how we would do it. And I love the way uh, John Oswald says this. He says, God is strong enough to overcome his enemies by becoming vulnerable, transparent, and humble. The only hope, in fact, for turning enmity into friendship. You see, this is how God's going to accomplish his purposes. And then the names and the titles given to this child are going to emphasize this work that he's going to do. It says he will be born to us. He's, he's going to be Jewish. He's going to be born to us. The government's going to rest on his shoulders as though he's going to be wearing it as a robe, meaning that he's going to rule someday, although the text never calls him king, at least not here in Isaiah chapter 9, because there were too many bad kings at the time. He'll be a wonderful counselor. That phrase literally means a wonder of a counselor. He's going to provide depth of wisdom and, and insight that the world has never seen. This was not what the kings were doing at the time. They were giving horrible, horrible counsel. They were counseling the people to turn away from God, to turn to spiritus. And Jesus is going to say some of the most difficult things that we have ever heard. Things like if you want to gain your life, you're going to have to do what? You're going to have to lose it. You're going to have to hate your life in this world. Christ knew that anything in our life can become an idol and become an obstacle between he and I. He's described as mighty God. What does that fully mean? This king being described is going to have the might of God. All the evil of the world can be hurled against him until there is nothing more to hurl, and he's going to be able to absorb it all. Only the might of God can do that. He's the everlasting father. He'll be the good, perfect dad that we all want, and he'll never stop being our father. Now, that's hard. You know what? And if you had a crummy dad, I'm sorry. But this will be the perfect dad, the one that seeks his best for his children, the one that will sacrifice for his children. This is still God the Son we're talking about. However, he's got these father-like qualities to him. Finally, he's the Prince of Peace. And this is this climactic title that's given to Christ. He's not going to bring war. He's putting an end to war. He's not going to bring oppression. He's putting an end to oppression. He's bringing peace. He's going to be so transparent and so vulnerable that you won't be able to help but to love him and to follow him. He's going to be the mystery that reconciles God and man. What will this kingdom be like? We see it in verse 7. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is important. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
We've seen what the zeal of mankind can do, and it doesn't cut it. So what kind of king is this? This is a king that's going to rule forever. It's going to be a king who doesn't die and go away. It's going to be a king that if he dies, he's going to be resurrected because he's going to rule forever. He'll be the king over Israel. This is something that Israel has never been able to accomplish. They've never had a king that could just live on the throne forever because that takes eternality. That's what this king is going to do. Israel always turned to other gods. But see, this king is not going to be dependent on the devotion of Israel because it's going to be his own zeal that accomplishes these things. That's the source of the light. It's God himself. It's his power and it's his zeal. <clears throat> so how then do we keep Christ central to Christmas? How do I keep this light of Christ in focus during Christmas? It's really pretty straightforward. I keep worshiping him. I keep myself devoted to him. I fight against all those good gifts that God has given me that tend to draw me away from him. So easy to do in the Christmas season. And please hear me. I'm not telling you to go out. I, I, Christmas trees are great. Figgy pudding is great. But keep your focus on Christ. This is a time to keep up your prayer and times in the Word. This is a time to keep your focus on the things that Christ has done for you. In the middle of the shopping and the stress and the busyness and falling off of ladders, don't forget why this, this season exists. It was necessitated by the brokenness of the world. This is what is unique about the believer's experience of Christmas and the non-believer's experience of Christmas. Because we keep ourselves devoted to Christ in the middle of the season. There's actually a, a quote from Tim Keller that was written in his book, The Hidden Truth Behind Christmas. And in it, he says this. He says, The Christian life begins not with high deeds and achievements, but with the most simple and ordinary act of humble asking. It begins with us calling out on God in repentance and asking for forgiveness. Then the life and joy grow in us over the years through commonplace, almost boring practices. Daily obedience, reading and prayer, worship attendance, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as our neighbors, depending on Jesus during times of suffering, and bit by bit our faith will grow, and the foundation of our lives will come closer to that deep river of joy. You see, it's about keeping our devotion to Christ. So how then do we keep Christ in focus? By keeping up your spiritual disciplines, by keeping up and keeping doing the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. You know, that story I started out with about the woman named Kirsten Powers, the journalist who had decided that she hated Christmas after she became a Christian. She went on to write some other things in that article. Remember, she came to Christ late in life. And she says this, she said, but, going back to Christmas, but then I realized that I had allowed the secular celebrations of Christmas to crowd out its transcendent meaning. As theologian N.T. Wright points out, it's Christmas that is the moment when God launched, and I love this, 
a divine rescue mission of humankind. God didn't just condescend to come to earth as a human. He came as a helpless infant. The king of kings was born amid barnyard animals and piles of hay after his lowly parents were turned away from better lodgings. When the magi came to see the Lord, there was no security on hand to judge whether they were worthy. The Messiah was approachable. He was both one of us and at the same time God with us. He was flesh. He would hunger, he would bleed, he would love. He would thirst and he would die. None of this could have happened had he not been born fully human. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we can't begin to comprehend what it was like to leave the glory of heaven. And as eager as those people were looking for the light, Lord, we too are eager for your light. We're eager for the second advent. We're eager, we're, we're eager Lord, for you to come back to us. I pray that throughout this Christmas season, we will keep that in view, that we will keep you central, that we'll keep your light central, and that we won't neglect it, God, because something else here on earth looks better. We love you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Peace to you all. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here.